ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. One of my earliest memories as a child is from the early 70s. I was very young and I was in the family car as it was zooming along the Carl Expressway across Circular Quay in Sydney. And I can remember looking out of the window of the car and seeing the massive white sails on the construction site on Benelong Point. And I asked my dad what it was. And he said, that is the Sydney Opera House, son, and it'll never be finished. But it was finished just six months later, and it joined the ranks of the world's truly great buildings. The Sydney Opera House looks like it was built by a pharaoh or an emperor. Its scale is breathtaking, and it looks great from every angle, like a movie star. Helen Pitt is here to tell the story of how the Sydney Opera House came to be, of how this wildly ambitious project was conceived by a working-class premier, an unknown Danish architect, and a conductor that was hounded out of Australia after a sex scandal. Helen Pitt has drawn on new information and diaries and letters that reveal how miraculous it was that the thing ever got made in the first place. And Helen's book is called The House. Hello, Helen. Hi, Richard. Now, you were a kid when the Sydney Opera House opened. You were there on that day. What do you remember of that day? Well, I was an eight-year-old on a ferry out on Sydney Harbour, and we were typical Sydney siders waiting long and hard to see the, the, the beautiful sails of this building opened. So what I recall was a load of people on the harbour in bikinis and champagne corks popping and big red um, ribbons floating in the breeze from the atop the, the big two shells. And I, I do remember too that a whole load of uh, pigeons were let loose at the what was called the big flap. It was the thing that they recruited all these pigeons from all over Australia to take part in in the big, you know, protest of uh, the, the, the announcement of the building o- opening. And then also hundreds and thousands of balloons, big red balloons, that because of it was being so windy, got blown straight out of the heads. So it was really choppy. I do remember feeling a little bit seasick and my dad took me out, held my hand and took me out on the boat and pointed atop the big shell and said, look, there's a guy, a black fella atop the big white shell. And so that's when the whole thing began. And I, I can certainly recall the joyous feel of everyone on the harbour just sort of waiting there to see what the Queen was going to do, what she was wearing. It happened to be a duck egg blue dress. And and all the various people that were taking part in, in, this, in this occasion, it was really the biggest event to take place in Australia at the time. And that Aboriginal man standing on the topmost sail of the Opera House, who was he? That was Ben Blakely. He was the star of Matlock Police, an Aboriginal tracker on Matlock Police, but he was actually the man that was pretending to be Benelong. You know, I am Benelong, the spirit of your people lives and 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 will continue on forever and ever. Benelong Point was where Benelong's hut was um, in the early days of Australian settlement. And it was also where the first performance took place by convicts. And so it had lots of reasons for being there. But Ben Blakely stood up there on top atop the shell and proclaimed, I'm Benelong, the, the spirit of my people lives here and their dance and song survives. Going back, looking through the records, looking through the the old newspapers from the 1950s, when do you start to see the cry go up that Sydney needs an opera house, a proper palace of culture? Yes, well, it was really the arrival of Queen Elizabeth II in 1954. So, you know, 1.8 million people in Sydney, a million of them gather at the at, around the shores of the harbour, a million, a million people, half wow. more than half of the city came to welcome the Queen as she she steamed she she came in on board on the steamship Gothic into the harbour, and she uh, walked up to Martin Place and and laid a, laid a, something at the cenotaph, and then everyone realised, well, look, we don't really have anything really fancy to show her. You know, there was no cultural place other than the town hall. There was the Tivoli and down the road, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, the t- there was the Tiv. <laughs> there were a whole, like, sort of small musical theatre-ish type of things, but nothing really grand. And so that year 
in the wake of her visit, um, a group of Australians, mainly led by Nugget Coombs, started the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, which was the forerunner to the Australian Opera. He sort of lobbied hard of the Menzies government, who was clearly enamoured by the Queen. And they were hoping for a, a sort of Elizabethan age to dawn in Australia at that time. So it was it was very inspiring for cultural people to, to take up this sort of mantle of like, maybe we should get something going. And so that that was really the year that it began and and the, at the end of that year was when the move for the Opera House really began. So now we have to bring in the first kind of great, grand, genius, tragic figure here, which is Eugene Goossens. Eugene Goossens, who was the conductor of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra at the time and also was the, the manager of the Conservatorium, uh, Conservatorium of Music, in Sydney. Uh, Tell me a bit about him and how Mm. he was brought to Australia Mm -hmm. and what Mm. kind of his importance in Sydney Mm. culture at the time. Well, Eugene Goossens was a big name in America and England. He was Belgian, a Belgian-born conductor who had been brought to America to conduct the Eastman Kodak silent film um, orchestras. So he was like a rock star there. He was mobbed like a movie star everywhere he went. And he performed at um, the Civic Centre in San Francisco at the end of World War II and all the world leaders were gathered and everyone thought, wow, that guy is great. So everyone scrambled to get him as a guest conductor and one of them was Charles Moses, who was the head of the ABC at the time. So the ABC was just in its infancy. Had begun, he was the, the general manager of the ABC from 1935 till the late 40s. So he really knew that they needed to get classical music in between the sport and the news on the radio. So they thought we need him as a guest conductor. So he got him as a guest and then he convinced him to come to Australia by luring him, him with a salary that was more than Ben Chifley, the Prime Minister, earned at the time. Wow. By, <laughs> by, by combining the role as head at the, of the Conservatorium and the head of the symphony. So got him out here in 1947 and he proclaims I'm going to make the Sydney Symphony Orchestra players more famous than cricket players. And that was kind of a motherhood statement, if you like. But he really did. You know, the subscriptions just grew overnight, 20,000 people packing the town hall. You couldn't get a seat to the symphony. It had to be, you know, willed to you by a relative who died. It was really the hottest ticket in town. Such and was the demand for classical music in Sydney led when the orchestra was conducted by this this glamorous figure. Precisely. Yeah. You know, he was a really major figure. in he, And he'd been lobbying Charles Moses for years, um, seven years it took him to finally get a meeting with Joe Carl, which was in the wake of the Queen's visit. So he really, it had been his because he felt that the town hall where he was performing, it just wasn't set up for um, the right acoustics for for his his orchestra players. And, you know, not only that, you've got to remember, we had the six o'clock swill happening then. You couldn't get an alcoholic drink at night after, at a performance. So people would be ducking across the road to pubs in George Street and it really wasn't a great setup at all for everyone. So... Charles M- Moses finally capitulated to his constant demands and arranged a meeting with Joe Carl, and that's so, kind of how it all began. So Goosens nagged the head of the ABC to arrange a meeting with the Premier of New South Wales. Nag, nag, nag. Nag, yep, nag, nag, yep. and that's, that's how he, he made it happen. He's a fascinating guy, Goosens. Like, you, you showed that he had friends... Igor Stravinsky was a friend. Nellie Melba was a friend. He went fishing with Pablo Picasso. I, I mean, this is the kind of guy he was. He, he must have made a real, a, a real noise when he arrived, so, so to speak. Why? How did he come to the conclusion? How did Goosens come to the conclusion that this opera house would have to be on Benelong Point? Well, he would go for a walk daily in the botanical gardens with his secretary. Um, he was Eugene Goosens the fourth, and there, there had been, you know, many of them before him is 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 uh, from a long line of conducting conductors in his family and so he'd walk daily with the secretary and they they'd get to the turnaround point um uh, which was the turnaround point for the city's trams at that point been long point if anyone remembers it was this sort of old building Fort Macquarie it was known as you know probably the the most beautifully located tram turnaround spot in the world at the time <laughs> and he'd say it must be here it absolutely must be here. Now, there'd been several sites that had been discussed as potential places for the Opera House. One was above Wynyard Station because they thought that would be great for public transport access. Another one, George Molnar, who was the uh, cartoonist. editorial cartoonist yeah. at the Herald, he was also an architecture lecturer and he set 
his students a task in 1951 to draw us a, a, a building that would be an opera house on the site at the end of Oxford Street near, near, near Hyde Park. So there were many options that were being um, flouted at the, at the time, but it was really Goosen's that wanted it at Benelong Point. So when he finally got that meeting with Joe Carl. Joe Carl said, well, we can't because the, the, the Maritime Services Board is going to be there. We've, we've got plans to put a big international terminal there. And he said, put it on the other side, which he did. So that's why the passenger terminal is now on the other side of Circular Quay. Indeed. Well, it was Joe the... Carl listening to Eugene Goosens, essentially. So th- this brings the Premier of New South Wales, Joe Carl, into the picture. Uh, I fell in love with Joe Carl a little bit reading your book. I fell in love with him as a, as, as a figure. Tell me a bit about him, the kind of man Joe Carl was. He was an extraordinary man by all sounds, by, by all accounts. He had nothing more, no, nothing more than a, a pianola in his Marrickville home. That's his, the extent of his musical knowledge. However, he really understood Sydney people, I think. He was a gifted orator. He left school at 15. He was a, um, a, a ra- worked in the railways at Everly Street around Redfern and um, he, he rose in the union movement, but largely thanks to his skills as a public speaker. He went to WEA, he joined debating teams. He was. He, you can tell throughout the book, I think, when you read a Joe Carl speech, how gifted he was at communicating. And, and it was only um, like in the later days of his premiership in the sort of nascent years of television that you got to see him really perform well because he was a great television performer. He was great on the radio. He just had the capacity to sway people by his convincing skills as, as, a, as an orator, I he, think. So he, he really was crucial to getting this, this, this thing up. He was a real do-it too. That was the other thing. He actually got stuff got done. Got stuff done. People loved yeah. that about him. It was like federal Labor at the time. They were in perpetual opposition. But Labor in New South Wales had a governing mentality in those days and, and knew how to, seemingly knew how to get things done. I, I want to quote from one of his speeches here when he 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 announced his support for a, a Sydney Opera House. He said, I'm just quoting him here, if we in our lifetime did nothing more than express our love of the arts by providing a building worthy of them, even when names are forgotten, the building will always remain as a testimony to what was done in the year 1954 by a group of citizens for the encouragement of talent and culture. God, it's kind of long to hear a, you know, a, a politician say use words like that these oh, days. Oh, I know. Don't we long for it? Even even Nugget Coombs, when he was at that public meeting in in the November of 1954, said, "If you are the man that gets." the Opera House on this harbour in Sydney, your name will live on for 400 years as the, as the name of the man that put um, Sydney on the, the world map. Well, unfortunately, his name lives on in the Carl Expressway, Expressway yeah. you know, which garrots it, right, visually garrots Circular Quay. But, but um, that's kind of in reading all the old Herald files and the interviews that I did, I, I actually talked to a lot of the state parliamentary reporters in that era and they said, Joe Carl was an extraordinary man. Well, I just love the fact that the pharaoh of the opera house turned out to be a man who liked to drink and a smoke and a bed at the races and uh, a sing-along at the pianola around completely, his marital home. Completely. <laughs> unlikely unlikely bedfellow with Eugene Goosens, but completely worked out in terms of they had a great respect for each other. But they, also he, he, he insisted that it had to be for everyone, a house for everyone, not just the wealthy. It had to be a house for absolutely everyone to enjoy. So then we get to 1955... And Eugene Goos- Goosens is suddenly, suddenly destroyed by a major scandal. Tell me about this scandal, please, Helen. This is quite an extraordinary story. My publisher calls this the Fifty Shades of Eugene chapter. It's kind of best read in the privacy of your home, perhaps. But um, Eugene Goosens, because he was a guest conductor, went around the world constantly. Um, and he was with his third wife in Sydney, and he was finding it all a little bit staid, a bit boring, and so he would go back to London quite regularly. And um, when he did, he was asked to bring some pornographic material back with him. Um, he, he'd become, he'd befriended the witch of, no, the woman that's known as the witch of King's Cross, Rosalie Norton, and her her partner, which ran a supposed or an alleged, according to the tabloids of the time, a witch's coven in, in um, King's Cross, which was quite notorious at the time. Yeah, she was practising sex magic. Yeah, pan-worshipping yes, pan. Sex yeah. magic, it was mm. called, which is 
actually technically a euphemism for oral sex. However, no one knew really what that was at the time. Call it what you like. <laughs> that's what that's what Eugene called it, and he'd write these really racy letters to her. Mm. Anyway, he he did have a whole load of pornographic material um, hidden away in compo in in what looked like musical scores. You know, to say Brahms on one, and you know um, uh, names that looked like someone else's on the other. And so when he brought them back into the country. He was ambushed because the tabloids got wind of this. They raid, there was a raid of um, the, the the home in in King's Cross, and they got word, and he was completely ambushed, uh, um, taken away to vice questioning by the by the vice squad, and it was an extraordinary embarrassment for the yeah. ABC. You can imagine he was just coming back from London after being knighted too. That was so, so Eugene, yes, that's so, right. So that was all put through the courts, and he was disgraced. So that that meant he had to leave Australia. He left Australia. And it was, it, uh, he appeared in court and and just said, please just sort of let me leave the country. And two of his students, final year students at the con, Richard Benign and, and a, 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 a typist that he plucked out of the typing pool, Joan Sutherland, who they actually obviously became an enamoured of each other and married and also enamoured of Eugene Goosen. So they went to visit him later in his life in the early 60s and he was just destroyed by the public scandal by the, of the whole thing. You know, it was just a huge embarrassment. And people forget that he is the man that gave us the Sydney Opera House because his name was sort of blackened by this scandal. So that's the first great man to Number be one. immolated mm. by the Sydney mm. Opera House. Mm. So the committee was set up by the state government to find a design for the Sydney Opera House and they had some finalists... But to sort of help them decide, they brought in a world-famous architect, a man by the name of Aero Saarinen. Now, he was a guy who designed amazingly beautiful biomorphic buildings all over the world. He's a huge international mm. reputation. Mm. And they brought him, they flew him to Sydney to help them make a decision. Please, please mm. tell me the story of what unfolded there. There were four judges. There were two from Australia and two from abroad. The one from abroad was uh, Leslie Martin, who had done Festival Hall in London, and the other two were um, Cobden Parks, who was Henry Parks' son, the government architect, and the other one was um, Harry Ingham-Ashworth, who was the Dean of Architecture at Sydney Uni. And so they called in this superstar, the Aero Saarinen, who was renowned for the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, Missouri, and also the General Motors building in Detroit, Michigan. And he really was the man's man of modernism. He was extraordinarily well-respected in America. He was the time, on Time magazine cover in 1956. He really was the, the, the man in architecture. So he was flown in and he arrived late. Um, the judging had begun on a Monday. He flew in on the Friday. It took him forever to get here too. And so he sort of waltzes into the building and uh, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales where the judging took place. And there were 233 entries from all around the world. Carl had set this um, international competition to get a design for the building and obviously overwhelmed with choice, a bit, a bit like the, the judges in the Archibald competition, I imagine, you know, they're sitting there, no, no, no. And they had a pile of rejects that were already established um, on, on one side, the three had gone through. And he sort of flipped through them and he came across this one that was quite striking. Now, at the time, he was working on the TWA terminal at um, JFK, which if anyone knows, it's kind of, it's rounded and very, very um, vault, like it's quite similar to the Beautiful. Sydney Opera House. Yeah. And and the irony is they'd actually met he and and the architect that he eventually chose, obviously, Jorn Utzon, because they're both Scandinavian and, and Utzon had visited him in America. So perhaps, you know, he recognised his style. I don't know, but he could certainly see that it stood out. But, but here's the thing, Helen. It wasn't one of the finalists, was it? Uh, Utzon's design, or was it? I don't know. Well, it wasn't. Uh, so there was this. No, pile. that's right. That the pile was on the rejects. They hadn't even got to a, a discussing the finalists because it was ten days worth of judging, but it was certainly not in one of their preferred lists. So it finally got pulled out from the reject pile. So he just went flick, 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 and went, yep. "Oh, yeah." Now this is a dip- disputed story because, of course. As, as he said, he flew off back to America and so did the um, Leslie Martin back to England. He said, look, it's not really me. I'm not taking any risks. I don't have to live in that city. You know, they're the ones that have to live with that decision. So it's been a disputed story because the other judges said, oh, no, no, it was us that decided, you know, don't be silly. However, I did track mm. down his son and his son has done a documentary on his father and he wasn't a big fan of his father's but he um, said, look, 
he definitely chose that. And he, 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 in some ways it was the way Eric, his, his filmmaker son, had a redemption story with him because he started to think, well, you know, he wasn't the best at dads, but gosh, he's given the world some beautiful buildings and the Opera House was one of them. So he does, he, he it, it is pretty much, a, the, the Aero name lives in anecdotal evidence throughout the whole Opera House story. Um, Jorn Utzon's great-grandson is named after him and and Richard Laplastria, who was one of the, the people that worked with Utzon on the Opera House, named his son also Aero. So... So the story goes, and I, I, I have to say I find this entirely plausible, that he picked it out of the reject pile and went, there's your opera house. Mm. Now, when he looked at John Utzon's drawing, the sketches that he'd done for his proposal for a Sydney opera house, you look at it today and it looks distinctly different from the opera house that was mm. achieved in the end. Mm. It, it's got the sails. It's mm-hmm. got them sort of over one another. But it's a, it's a little flatter. It's more yes. horizontal. And the other buildings look more like they're tied down, to they're, they're pinned down to the deck. A, a bit more. How much detail was in the drawings that that uh, that Jonathan had submitted? Not much. In fact, the judges said it was simple to the point of de- being diagrammatic. So what Saarinen did was to go back to his hotel room and sketch a little more thoroughly the idea to hand it to Joseph Carl when he made the announcement on um, January 29, 1957. And then also when uh, the other judges got back to work, they, they commissioned... Arthur Baldwinson to do a watercolour because they knew there was so little to go on that both the press and the people of Sydney would not be very keen on that. So, so this radical design, they hadn't, Utzon hadn't really given any thought to solving the problems, the, engin- the engineering oh, not issues at all. Not of, at all. of building these vast shells that would have to form the, the, the carapace of the, the opera house. No clue. And in fact, Saarinen was okay with that because with his TWA design, he'd just done two or three inch thick concrete. And that's kind of what they thought that they would do at the very beginning. But it turned out that that just wasn't going to wasn't, wasn't going to fly. Work. They couldn't no. do it the way it was built, so they had to change the structure eventually. eventually. Yeah. So once it was announced at the gallery in New South Wales, uh, you pulled out comments from the Sydney Morning Herald there and the reaction to it. I'll just quote them here. It was described in the Sydney Morning Herald variously as quote a wonderful piece of sculpture, or a haystack covered by several tarpaulins which are being lifted up by a strong wind. Someone else said it was a ray of hope. Someone else called it the New South Whale as in W-H-A-L-E. Someone said it looked like a sink with plates stacked in readiness for washing. Someone else said a some large, lovely ship of the imagination. And someone else said a hideous parachute which we cannot fold up and put away. <laughs> That's fantastic. So so it really engaged people right from the get-go. Oh, people the either very loved it or went, what is that, right? Day yeah. one, yeah. you know, even in the, the, the rooms of the art gallery, there was like, oh, my goodness. You know, even Charles Moses in his oral history to the Opera House um, didn't say it at the time, but in hindsight he's like, great building, but there is no way the ALP is going to give this the go-ahead. You know, most people were like, when they saw it on the front page of the Herald, you talk to anyone that picked up the paper the next day and saw that picture and they're thinking, right, okay, I don't know quite. I mean, they agreed it was beautiful, but they just had no clue how that was going to get done. I know, but, God, it just seems so close. If Saren hadn't flicked through the rejects, we would have ended up with some ghastly concrete box, wouldn't oh, we? Oh, I've Almost seen the certainly. rejects. The rejects yeah. are really not anything much to write home about. And, and we'd be talking now, we'd be like te- years ago, we'd have talking about tearing it down like uh, like a footy stadium absolutely. and building something else by absolutely. now. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it was remarkable. It was such a bold move. And in fact, all the journalists that I interviewed that were there at the time, you know, that, I, that that's been one of the nicest things. I, I've gone back to a lot of my um, predecessors at the Sydney Morning Herald who've been like my deep throats and reporting and, and they have been really, really helpful in re- recounting the, the mood in that era because it was a really bold thing to take a risk on and, and they didn't think, you know, like like Charles Moses, they just didn't think it was going to get through the ALP um, policy. So meanwhile, meanwhile, Helen, we have in Denmark the architect Jorn Utzon who's, who's done this sketch, sort of shunted it off mm-hmm. to Sydney probably not expecting even to no, get a call back. No. How was he told that he had won the competition to design the Sydney Opera House? Well, it was a herald scoop, actually, because they got to him before he'd actually been told that he won the competition. So 
what happened was the announcement was made, uh, the, the Premier tells everyone the name, entrant number 218. So everyone scuttles off to try and, you know, cover the news story. And back at the Herald, the Broadway newsroom, they, they use this um, radio telephone system of, of trying to call him at Den- in Denmark. And so he has just had a baby. His ma- oh, sorry, his wife's just had a baby and they're out walking in the forests around Hellebeck, which is beautiful. It's, it's, it's cold. There's no snow. And um, the phone rings and his 10-year-old daughter, Lynn, answers the phone and they say, Lynn, is your father there? No. Can you go and get him? It's, it's really big news. Your father's won a prize in Sydney. There's someone on the phone wanting to talk to him. So she races off on her bike to go and get him and they they see her and they're like what's going on what's you know really worried when she arrives and she goes you've won some you've won some prize in sydney and for utsen he'd entered so many competitions that even when he won the 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 commissions often didn't go ahead but he was still pretty excited about this one because he'd spent 6 months working really hard at it so he raced back to the phone and he gets on there and and this the funny thing is that this story is recounted on the front page of the herald the the day because the first thing he says the the reporter asks him how does it feel to know that you've won the sydney morning herald uh, the, the sydney opera house competition he says Oh, well, I haven't actually received new word of that yet, but it'll be fabulous. I can't wait to migrate there. Kind of immediately he knew that he wanted to come here and oversee it because part of the deal of winning the competition was the architect had to sit a New South Wales Architecture Board examination but would be brought here to oversee the building of it. So big party ensued in Hellebeck. All the, all the family came. And at, at, at the time, he was working with a Swedish architect by the name of Eric Anderson. They'd worked on it together, but and Anderson was involved in the beginning, but he sort of dropped out because he came to Sydney on his first visit with Utsun and didn't really like it. So, you know, it was Utsun's baby, so he let him kind of take over. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. He's a very handsome man. He is. A very handsome man. Mm. He looks like Gary Cooper in that time. There's no doubt about that. He gets a rock star arrival in Sydney. Like they cannot believe. He's just his movie star, good looks, his his way, his European way, his little accent. He speaks perfect English, but with that lovely sort of accent. And I guess what's one of the really interesting things about reading all the old stories was just how much the people of Sydney wanted this building and how excited they were to meet him for the first time at the town hall in 1957. It also reminds me of the, Olympi- the Olympics in a way. There's this feeling, oh, we want this so badly, but we're frightened we'll fail and we're frightened we won't pull it off. That, th- that there's think, two different things. Yeah, yeah, there was a bit of that, definitely. Mm. But the town hall officials said they had never seen a more excited crowd that day when he was there. And it was really like the whole of Sydney uh, um, came to to wish him, well, 2,500 people packed the town hall, but there were people all around the city sort of wanting to catch a glimpse of this man because obviously it captured the public imagination. He received before he came to Sydney 800 letters from Australians saying how excited they were at his design and his his boldness, what he was bringing to the nation. There was a huge fundraiser event that was held at the town hall. Tell me what that night was like. It was a very funny occasion. So we have the very public situation um, where we've got the uh, uh, Joan Hammond singing One Fine Day and we've got um, the various ABC people, Charles, Charles Moses, addressing the crowd and they literally start the, the fundraiser right there. So they, they announce a public fundraiser and the fact that the, the lotteries will fund the building. So people were falling over themselves to give money to this. So a load of money was raised on that first day and then later that night... Uh, they had this little private party known as the kissing party, which was a kind of odd little fundraiser. So they sort of all got together, the Jorn Utzen, the, the mayor of Sydney at the time, uh, who's Harry, Harry Jensen, known as 
Handsome Harry or Headline Harry, whoever you d- depended how you, you, you looked at him. Um, he he and the the opposition leader Pat Morton they traded kisses for cash. It was a really odd little story where you know kind of like a, a telethon, I guess. You know where I'll raise you this, I'll give you fifty dollars, fifty pounds if you do if you kiss me. So this little smoochathon it was called they it raised you know half a million dollars wow, you with, couldn't do that today you'd have to work it in reverse like precisely like the politician won't kiss you <laughs> it's kind of an odd yes given our me too campaign it's kind of not the sort of thing you'd have expected to start this public building but it, it was really kind of a colorful little chapter that, that that's could have been lost in in the in the history of, of the story as as was that meeting it was really a phenomenal meeting so then the soil's broken in 1959, two years later, it seems like if it hadn't started then, even though the designs weren't finished and the problems had not been solved, it probably never would have happened, would, would it? Unlikely to have happened. Now, so what happened was, as we've said, when the announcement came, um, it still needed to get through the ALP caucus. Now, in the first motion before Utsun came, the caucus voted 24 to 17 in favour. It's like a bit of a knife edge uh, win, a bit like a Liberal leadership spill. You know, the numbers were a little too close and there was a motion to, uh, to, to scuttle it at the next caucus meeting. So Carl had this brilliant idea to take it to the floor of the ALP, um, to take it to the party and let, let the rank and file decide. So the ALP conference comes and it's again at the town hall and all these blokey blokes of the ALP are saying, mm, I'm not really sure. I think this is just for hoity-toity people. I don't really mm. think we want Rich this. Rich man's white elephant. Yeah. 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 And 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 so it's about to get knocked down. And then this woman from the clothing trades union, a Miss N Napper, as all we know her name as, stood up and said, you know, I'm from this small island of Malta, which has the third largest opera house in the world. Shouldn't we, as women, be able to raise our children in the culture of not just rock and roll, but we want to be able to afford the dress circle. We want to take our children to cultural things. And it was so well received, she got a standing ovation. Her motion was backed by Kath Anderson, who was the mayor, the wife of the mayor of Waverley, notorious, um, really, really sort of strong woman. So it's the women of the ALP that got this through the state conference. So that's why um, Utsun by the time he came, he said, I'm not coming until you can guarantee me it's going to be built. So on that first meeting when he comes in 1957, he goes to meet Carl for the very first time and he knows he's a bit of a character and he's sort of sensing that Joe Carl is the one that's going to get this thing happening. So they go up to the Premier's room and and the Premier pops a bottle of sherry and they start having a little little drink to, in, in celebration. And Carl's first question is, when can you start and Utsun replies, well, I'm not really sure how I'm going to build it yet. I don't know what I need to do to get it built. And he said, that's not what I ask, Joe Carl comes back as, when can you start? So he's really keen to get this thing going because he kind of senses it's a political opportunity for him and he wants it done before the 1959 election. So he does. He starts it in March 1959, just weeks before the state election. Well, maybe... Maybe Joe Carl had a sense of his own mortality. Perhaps too, he did. Perhaps he, he died. Did. He died not long after. It that, was that a tragedy. Election. He's the second tragedy, really, of the Opera House story. If you ask me, he 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 won the election, and um, it was in the midst, interestingly, of a huge scandal um, where the leader of the Country Party, Davis Hughes, got not, uh, he lost his leadership um, mantle because he was considered to have committed a fraud in Parliament, and so. He he, without he was kind of like the Barnaby Joyce, the member of New England at the time, and um, a very controversial character. But he got re-elected, uh, not just not on the backbench. He didn't become um, leader of the Country Party, but Joe romped in largely because everyone kind of wanted this story. But the real tragedy is that the 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 the, the sod turning happens in March 1959, and Joe's dead by October. Just drops dead. So the soil is broken, and. The workers, I love the way the workers are kind of valorised at this time. This is lovely. The great American singer Paul Robeson came to the site to sing for the construction workers. On the construction site, Paul Keating went down to see to see this this happen. But there was a problem with the design of the shells. Mm. And, and the, the chief engineer was a fellow Scandinavian, a man named Ova Arup, mm. and, and he couldn't solve the problem of how to construct, con, uh, construct the concrete shells. The way Utson 
himself arrived at the solution. It's this moment when I actually think that Utsun was a genius. Mm. It's hard to explain, mm. but it's all sort of based on a sphere, isn't it? Mm. About using the different parts of a sphere. That was his, his chief Precisely. insight, wasn't it? Yeah. Arab was always on him that the shell had to be, it had to be geometric shapes put together. So if, if, for it to be affordable, it needed to be broken down into big, giant Lego blocks, if you like, and there needed to be um, a, a way to construct it that was simple, that could allow for repeated geometry. But even Arup in his, all the, the thousands of man hours they put in in London to get it built, they couldn't solve that. So it was actually Utzon who came up with this spherical solution of realising that um, if I create a sphere and cut the parts of the shell from that sphere, then I can just do the repeated geometry, which is what we needed in mass production for a building that size. So that was crucial in in understanding how to build the building. So then the shells could then be constructed from prefab parts and mm-hmm. then assembled onto concrete ribs, and that was the solution. And in a way, the, the design that had to be was more beautiful than the original design. That's, that's purely subjective. Absolutely. The, what we got was better than the original sketch. I well, think. I think so. This is, again, it's it's another one of those grudge matches that you have in Sydney, you know, so be like the rabbit hose versus the roosters. You're either on one camp or, or, or you're not, you know, but I think it is. And what happened was he used a lot of methods used in boat building because Woodson's father was a very well-known boat builder in, in Scandinavia. He designed a thing called the Aalborg dinghy, which was very much used throughout the world, in fact, in sea scouting circles, which uh, it was a simple form of designing boats that 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 was very sort of um, aerodynamic. And he was a really keen observer of nature, his father, as 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 is Utzon himself. Utzon, Jorn Utzon was dyslexic. So he's very much an Einstein kind of character. He didn't read much. He was very tactile. He drew beautifully and he imagined the building into existence, if you ask me. So that's that's kind of his methods of dealing may have been very different at the time. But Yeah, I love the fact he's the son of a boat builder and this is why the Opera House, I suppose, the idea that you can have a shape that's not unlike the, the, the power of a ship mm. uh, can, can be, can exist rather than some, like I say, another concrete box, which was all the rage mm. at mm. the time. Now, <laughs> there was a party. There was a party on the construction site held by a socialite with 600 socialites and 400 workers all wearing hard hats. Tell me a bit about that night. Well, this was one of the plans by the executive committee to kind of make the Opera House not just a high-end thing. It was going to be pop at the ops. There was going to be, like, to, to make it a bit more popularised, to get some pop music happening there. So Gillian Robinson was this journalist that had returned from um, working in London for Murdoch and wanted to have a party and, you know, can I do it on the construction site? And yes, of course they say and it turns into this wild night where the easy beats play wow. little little patty plays and she said her parents said it was this is too wild you're coming home at 16 and you know there were workers hanging from the ceilings and all sorts of wild fun things happening and and it was so scandalous that um, there, there were beer cans everywhere and, you know, the next day was a complete mess and the only person there at 7.30 on time, none of the workers except is June Daly Watkins, the etiquette queen who's there to help clean up. It, it was so scandalous that they decided we can't really do that anymore. Let's just get the building completed. Although they had huge, huge neon lights to get working throughout the night. You know, they, it, it was it was everyone was working hard at that. They thought, okay, we can't afford really to have a party because it's such a public place in the centre of Sydney. Everyone could watch They, they had on. dancers from the Pink Pussycat, the King's Cross Strip right, Club. That's right. And the Easy Beats playing on the construction site. This is unthinkable in this day well, and age. Well, it is interesting and that's why um, <laughs> the, the Paul Robeson performance too. You know, we forget mm. that there were all these performances that took place prior to the actual building being completed and, and it was a young Paul Keating that hopped on the bus to go down and see it. Anyone who saw that Robeson performance was completely blown away. He sang a cappella and many people wrote to me because I put a call out on the letters page of the Sydney Morning Herald, you know, can tell me who who was there that day. And so emotional. Led, I got such emotional letters, people remembering it and how, how proud they were to be there to see that. Okay, Helen, this brings us to 1965. The, the building's still under construction, mm. still problems to be solved. And there's a new, there's a change of government in New mm. South Wales. The government of Robin Askins is elected and the new works minister in charge of the Opera House is a man named Davis Hughes, who you mentioned mm. there earlier. Why did he clash so powerfully with the architect, Jorn Utzon? Well, it's really too simple to say it was, you know, a clash between the European visionary and the tough-as-nuts Tasmanian, which, he, which is what he was, Um 
it, it was simply that Davis Hughes felt he had a mandate to get this building finished, a bit like what your dad was saying. Like everyone in Sydney had been watching it for seven years and there didn't seem to be much progress because, you know, it's so very public again. So so he said, I want from you a, a, a plans and I want to know the con- final construction date. And I guess that had got a bit out of control. Utzon was working very sort of um, uh, with, with some great ideas, a great um, sort of... Um, uh, I guess, on impresario. And he had these great ideas to involve the people of Sydney in the actual construction. Like he got these plywood ceilings being um, built down in uh, uh, on the Parramatta River. And his plan was to float them down the Parramatta River on barges. So everyone could say, oh, look, there goes parts of the Sydney morning, uh, the, the, the Sydney Opera House. And he was kind of like going to do a very Aida-like operatic thing of bringing them all in through the windows. and everything. But that kind of... It was annoying the New South Wales government because even though we were paying for it with lottery, our own lottery tickets, so it's kind of like the first crowd-funded building in Australia, mm. the New South Wales government wanted it completed and and because they had won to a two-seat majority I- I- that year to say, let's get this thing finished. So he was put under pressure to get it done by Herr Davis Hughes. So, uh, so what was the issue in the end that led to the breakup, that led to uh, Jonathan saying, I'm leaving? It was a clash over the use of the plywood, paying for the plywood mock-ups because he plywood. wanted to play plywood and plywood mullions and the mock-up, mock-ups for the roof. But also because Davis Hughes had been made his paymaster as the public works minister, he was put in charge of the project, he simply stopped paying Utzon. Now, this was a real problem because Utzon had hired a firm of young architects, you know, had many people working for him, but he couldn't afford to pay them anymore. So it was a, it was a clash over the mock-ups and the money. So... After being given this rock star welcome and even when he arrived in Sydney to live here, the Herald boasted, you know, uh, his home, he was going to live in Bayview Heights, you know, property heights, property values to double in Bayview Heights the moment the Utzon, the Opera House architect, arrives. Um, he was greeted by the Queen, you know, he's given a complete welcome. But after it was taking so long, he was become less and less favoured in the city. He's becoming a whipping boy, wasn't he? was he? completely yeah. a whipping boy for the yeah. political power, the political winds of the day. So... Um, he went to the minister's office after sort of several times saying, I can't work like this, I cannot work like this. He went with his two, lo- well, one loyal lieutenant to um, to see Davis Hughes and Davis Hughes on February 28, 1966, calls him in, has this 15-minute meeting in which he says, I can't work like this, I go. And... Um, he never actually said, I resign, but the paper recalled, reported it as uh, he reser- resigned angrily in, in a verbal interview. Um, I think my take on it is he probably went away thinking that he would come back, that he couldn't work with the New South Wales government. And certainly the letters I found in in the archive in Denmark after my two trips there, I found old letters that, you know, Utzon died 10 years ago, so his family have donated letters now that, you know, in the wake of his his death we sort of are learning a lot more. And, and, and I truly believe he played politics behind the Askin government's back, um, rightly so, to try and come back. And um, So his strategy was to wait for a Labor government to come in and precisely, reappoint. But it never happened. It never happened. And, you know, meanwhile, the... the tragedy of, you know, everyone's descending on his home in Palm Beach and it's just getting crazy and he just knows he has to leave. And I remember Lynn, his daughter, telling this really tragic story of them going in a convoy of their Citroens. They had two Citroens. Her brother drove one and he drove the other. And they were leaving Palm Beach, going to the airport that day and they had to go out. They left, like he said, clandestinely like a criminal because it was such a big media scrum at that time. And as they approached going over the Harbour Bridge, he that she remembers him glancing to the left for his last view of his masterpiece. And she said, oddly, there was a cloud on top of the building. So he never actually saw it for one last time. And that's the tragedy we all know. You know, we know that he left and never saw his building complete. But I guess I found from reading all and interviewing all the various people, I just didn't know there were so many other tragedies associated with the building and and especially with the one, the guy that took over. 
I, my, my own take on it is I, I, I do think he was a genius. The way he just envisaged the whole thing and solved the problem of the sales, that elegant way he, he solved that problem. He was maybe just too proud in the end and maybe just too proud. And it was I think it was foolish of him never to come back and see it. I mean, that's just crazy. It's still his building. We recognise it's his building, even if another architect finished it off. Well, it's his building on the outside. It's not really his building on the inside, which is really an eye-opener for me, going to Denmark and seeing the interiors of his buildings there. I think the interior of the Sydney Opera House is Peter Hall's genius, and that's something completely different. Okay, now that brings us to him. He was the architect appointed to replace Utsun ultimately. Yes, unhappily. Unhappily. Tell, tell me a bit about him and, and, and a bit about the tragedy of Peter Hall. It was a tragedy. He was brought in by the state government. Um, they asked three architects and they all refused. He was the third. And he was a fine young architect. He had won, he was probably the best in his era. He'd won many awards. He'd won scholarships to Cranbrook, to Wesley College. He was really a shining star. And he was working for the Public Works Department and Government Architect's Office. And he was dragged in to take over. And he actually called Utzon and said, I don't really want to do this. Can you help me, please? And Utzon just said, well, I can tell you what I had in plan in store, but I, I can't really tell you how you're going to complete it. So he's left with very little. Um, Utzon left um, and his his lawyers handed over plans, what the plans that there were, but they weren't very detailed. Four fine craft models. It didn't tell him very much how to go on. So so we had to begin all over. And that meant that Peter Hall had to go travelling all around the world to opera houses around the world and consult with various people on the acoustics and so forth. And then, of course, Davis Hughes hops on a plane trip around the world, the education minister, all the Askin government people hop on and people sort of sensed a gravy chain, a bit like we have with the light rail today. I guess, you know, people are thinking, what's happening here? There's all these consultants being brought in. Peter Hall completed that building with very few plans, with a, a consortium called Hall, Todd and Littlemore. Um, they did the glass walls. They did many of the things that we know and love about our opera house today. They did a beautiful curtain of the sun and the moon that was a commission for John, John Coburn. They did the John Olson painting, Five oh, Bells. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And so for me, uh, I think... The opera house we know today, the interiors, they're very much Peter Hall's story. Now, the tragedy of Peter Hall, it just it just keeps getting really sadder because his wife hadn't wanted him to take on that job at all. She was an architect also. She'd studied um, design at university with him and she they lost their marriage essentially because of that disagreement over, over him taking the job. Um, architects all around the world said, don't do it. He did. And... He completed it on time and completed it um, with a flourish, I think, you know, and, and everyone can remember that day it opened. It, it was it was, it was was a remarkable achievement because he, he got the unions working together. He was widely liked by the staff, on the, all the workers on staff, you know. In a way that Utsun wasn't. Well, yes. Utsun certainly was at the beginning. No. Um, when, when, when he was doing the plywood uh, mock-up, the, when, when the first segment was, was put down on place there, he he completely teared up with all the workers there because he was so happy that what he was doing was working. It was a blemish-free segment and he was certainly popular at the beginning. But then as the relationship with Arab it disintegrated and the, dis the relationship with the government disintegrated, he became a, a more distant figure and he, in fact, spent less time at Benelong Point. He went up to Pitwater and, and worked from an office there with no phone. So you can imagine how frustrating that might have been for people on site. So so back to Peter Hall, what became of him though? In the well, end? the tragedy of Peter Hall is he he left the Opera House uh, project and um, was bankrupted. He, he lost two marriages, in fact, and um, he, he went into business many times over and um, ended up drunk and homeless and was picked up by the Salvation Army on the street. So here's this man that completed our best known building, died at the age of 64, probably from a broken heart when, in 1994, an exhibition came around called Unseen Utsun, which was the plans um, of of what he had done, what Utsun had had in plan, had, had in store for the building. And I think it just was the, the ending of him. I've certainly spoken to his family a lot and they were just completely heartbroken by bringing up this old argument again, you know, 20 years after the building had been completed. So... 
it, it is it is really a great tragedy. And I think what is happening now at the Opera House is a very strong move amongst the tour guides. Louise Heron, the CEO, has very much tried to reinstate Peter Hall in the narrative of this remarkable story. So the Opera House was opened in 1973, as you said right at the start, and it's been in operation for more than four decades now, and it's 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 unthinkable to think of Australia, let alone Sydney, without such a, a triumph. You never get tired of looking at, at, the, at the Sydney Opera House. You're, you're describing a thing of this, and we've talked about this, the Opera House as being a kind of a bonfire mm. for the lives and careers mm. of so many people. You know, Eugene Goosens, Joan Utzon, Peter Hall, uh, and many others besides mm. that, these great and amazing people. But to me, I think, this is what I thought, I, I don't think you get a building that great without human sacrifice on a grand scale. And really, it's lucky no one was killed. Oh, it is really lucky. <laughs> it is incredibly lucky no one was killed. There were actually three um, reporters killed during making a documentary in a helicopter on the, an ABC documentary. Oh, people were killed. Um, we th- right. But not really. They weren't. Not they, in the well, construction. Not in the construction no. of it. They, that was a remarkable thing, absolutely remarkable. And look, and with the distance of time now, we can obviously see... There were many, many great tragedies in the whole thing, but yes, it's it's just a remarkable triumph. And in fact, Richard Laplastria, who is one of, um, who, for whom Jorn Utzon was a mentor, the young architect that worked on his home at Bayview, um, he he tells the most extraordinary stories about it. He called his son Aero after Aero Saarinen, and he went back to see Jorn because he always wondered how must it feel to not see your masterpiece completed. And he went to see Jorn in the old folks' home with his son, Ero, and and they hadn't seen each other in 40 years. And and Jorn looks down at Richard's really sort of worker man's hands and says, look at your father's hands, uh, Ero. They've won many regattas because they were both great sailors together. They sailed together on pit water. And Rick, Rick laughed a bit and he didn't really know what to say. And then he said to Aero, Aero, look at Yawn's hands. They drew the Sydney Opera House. And I guess I found so many stories like this, that heartwarming stories when I talked to people. You know, Peter Hall's second wife, when I spoke to her, she hadn't spoken of this story in decades. So it was just beautiful to hear some of these stories to retold to me. You know, I know Ira Glass. I had dinner once with Ira Glass in Bondi. And Ira was, he's a New Yorker. It's hard to impress New Yorkers. He was indifferent to Bondi Beach, the, the, the glory of that. He was just indifferent to it. Didn't hate it. Didn't, just didn't see fit to remark on it. But when he came back, he did a live performance at the Sydney Opera House. And he said, I can't believe I'm playing at the Sydney Opera House. This is insane. I guess that's why I wrote the book, because I lived outside of Australia for 16 years. I was an exchange student in Sweden, where the tiles came from. I lived in San Francisco, where the Araldite, the epoxy resin came from. And I lived in France, where the whiskey-coloured windows were shipped over, you know, Oscar and Lucinda-like too, from, from, um, from France. And so I guess it was the story that everyone knew, and that's why I made it my business to retell it, because... It's the story everyone knows about my hometown and I wanted them to hear it. Great to speak with you, Helen. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. 